Man, I know that um, many of you have come in today, and I think it's just like one more thing that just kind of adds to uh, the drama of, you know, I, I don't know, is, did everyone think that 2020 ending was just like, it's over. It's worth, like, I don't know about you, but time is, is, a, is, a, is a vacuum right now. It means nothing, it means nothing to me. It's, it's over when you and I don't have to wear masks anymore. <laughs> And then it's not over because it'll be something else because such is the world of brokenness. Um, you know, all I have to say about what we saw uh, in the Capitol this, this week is I just want to encourage you once again as followers of Jesus. We need to remember as we're going to be considering today um, really the vision for Dorfo. Where do we believe God is leading us um, as we enter into this second decade of our existence? We've been blessed as a church who's effectively reached a lot of people over the last 11 years with the gospel. A lot of people have come to meet Jesus and never even heard the gospel before. Uh, and, and, you know, the question is, well, what should we be focused on in the next 10 years? I would argue the exact same thing. But when we consider vision, it's, it's what, how are we going to do the same thing? And how are we going to expand what it is that God has called us to? And one thing that this last year has been, uh, it's really pulled the band-aid off and brought to the surface really over the last four years of an increasingly polarized nation. I remember when uh, Donald Trump was elected as president, just dealing with the amount of uh, stress that so many were having uh, in their own families of people being on both sides and wanting to know how to navigate things. Uh, and I've always said the door of hope is, is, uh, is attempted to ride that line of being apolitical. I do not believe that the church is to be a political entity. I believe that the church is to be primarily a witness to the gospel of Jesus and that Jesus died for everyone on both sides of our polarized nation, whatever camp it may be, pick the worst person on both sides, Jesus died for them because he loves them. And I think what we have to be aware of is that we live in a time in which our nation and our culture um, is driven by spectacle. I mean, I've seen a lot of attempted political coups throughout my life. I've never seen anyone like say, you know, like a political coup in, you know, Colombia or something. Like you never see anyone dressed up like a Viking you know, in the capital. Like, I mean, only, leave it to America that even when we're trying to bring a political coup, we still go in costume. I mean, this is, a, this is, you know, the nature of spectacle. And it's also driven by the false belief that nothing bad could ever happen to me. Um, and sadly, a whole bunch of people, you know, that got caught up in a moment are facing very long prison sentences right now due to the federal offense that happened. But I think this is the thing that we have to be careful. For those of you that are like anti-Trump anti and that whole side, you're like, good, that's what all those people are. First of all, let's not villainize or turn into a caricature either side. Everyone on the left is not Antifa and communists. Everyone on the right are not a bunch of Nazis, okay? My grandma voted for, for Trump. She's a wonderful woman. Whether I agree with her political decision or not, it doesn't matter. She's an amazing woman who had deep convictions that led her to that choice. This is the reality, but our nation takes the extremes and says, this is what everybody is. 
And that's where you have this propaganda. And what it challenges us as believers is that we are called, we don't get to pick sides. That the church continues to be the only organization in the world and in its history that exists for the good of those outside of its walls. And we have to live in that posture. We have to continue to ask the question is, is how I'm living, how I'm conducting my life, being a witness to the goodness of who Jesus is. And I can promise you that 2020 was not a time where Jesus put his mission on pause. Um, unfortunately, we, had the, we in the church have acted like that. And I found myself in that place where we just need to hunker down and just get through this. It's, it's not about getting through anything because today is all there is. And Jesus' mission remains the same. He has come to seek and save that which is lost. I want to just remind you of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. For Christ's love, Paul writes, compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Not for some. It doesn't say that Christ died for the elect. It says that Christ died for all and therefore all have died. That we are to be carriers of this reconciling message, the gospel of grace uh, that speaks of a God who died for sinners of whom we are chief. This is the reality. And nothing will compel you in the Christian life. This is not a pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. You're not gonna make yourself be the Christian that God knows that you can be. He has given us new life and that life is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and nothing will inspire you to grow into maturity until you know in the depths of your being that on your worst day Jesus is crazy about you. Nothing will make you want to share the love of Christ with all people, people that sit in a completely different frame of mind than you. Can you love them with the love of Jesus because you know what it's like to be loved as a sinner? I love this, and he says, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Everything in our culture declares that life is about you. And yet Paul says, we're not living for ourselves anymore, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We're not actually interpreting human existence or those around us from the lens of our culture. We're not, we're not viewing people and judging people based upon their political identity. We are looking at people through the lens of Jesus who died for them because he loved them because it's his nature to love. And it says this, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, and notice this, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. What are we to be about as a community of followers of Jesus? The reconciling message of Jesus. You can't talk about reconciliation until you yourself have been reconciled. And Jesus has reconciled us to the Father. He has made right a relationship that was wrong and we are now to be carriers of that message. That's why we don't get to change the message. That's why we're not moving on to new messages because it is the news about what has already happened, not opinions about what you ought to be doing. It is the reality of the living Christ 
seeking and saving that which is lost. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. How are we doing in that regard right now? Because I feel like a lot of people's sins are being counted against them. That people's brokenness, we have this selectification lens where we where we see this kind of what I call selective sanctification, where I'm like, at least I'm not that person. I'm not doing what that person did. Where we're told here that the reconciliation that comes from Jesus, the gospel, is about him not holding our sins against us, but actually he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And he has committed to us that message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. How is Jesus doing in regards to making his appeal through your life? What do you think it means for him to make his appeal through you? What does your life speak about the love of God? How is the love of God being manifested in and through your life? Because he doesn't make his appeal through us because of how much we know. Or if you are faithful in giving and reading your Bible and, you know, cutting out the, you know, bad habits and do it like nobody cares if it doesn't produce love. If it does not produce in us a greater capacity, a gentleness and a patience with others. And I think that this is, inc- this is incredibly important for us to be thinking through because we are called a royal priesthood. And the priesthood of Christ is a, is a people who are so yielded to him that he, become evidenced. he becomes evidenced in our life. This is what the world needs to see in and through us. And so as we're considering the vision of Door of Hope, just know that this vision is held together by this gospel message, our four pillars being kind of the, the, the guideposts by which we keep the main thing the main thing. We are about the cross. We are about intentional life together. We are about simplicity. We are about the city of Portland. Those pillars are our guideposts, but where do we believe God is leading us? The mission of the church uh, is, is has been and will be the same, that we are called first and foremost to be witnesses to the living Christ. That's why we always say that we are a Christocentric church. If we're not preaching Jesus, we're not preaching. So I wanna share with you a vision statement so I just, we've been meeting as elders and we have a consultant, a guy that's been just a really dear friend who's helped me really think through kind of vision for Door of Hope in uh, what's awesome is he doesn't go to Door of Hope. Uh, he's a local guy, works at the Bible Project, uh, and uh, he does this thing called Life Plans. I've done it with him. Tim Smith did it with him. Tim Mackey, a lot of, uh, a lot of ex-staff, because everyone that seemed to do the life plan with him ended up leaving Door of Hope because they realized that they weren't doing what they should be doing. Uh, but, uh, but I didn't. I was like the first one from Door of Hope. They were like, well, it looks like you do not seem released from this job. So you have me. I'm yours. Uh, but but when, when we got together recently, it was to look at, like, do you have a vision for where you, where you believe God is leading Door of Hope? And it's funny because he asked me to not really overthink it. And just on the spot, he's like, 
first thing that comes to mind, what would you say is the vision for Door of Hope? And this was the first thing that came to mind, and I haven't really shifted on it. Now, I just want you to know this is not written in stone. We as elders still have, their elders have questions around some of the, the wording. Um, but I think that the essence, we all are in agreement with the essence of the statement. And how this vision will be fleshed out is still yet to be determined. But this is what we are committed to. This is where we believe God is leading us. So here is the vision statement. The door of hope is a urban evangelistic church planting movement with an emphasis on grace. I'm gonna just kind of focus in on four things, what it means for us to be an urban, what it means for us to be a, an evangelistic church planting, uh, to be evangelistic, what it means to be a church planting movement and what it means to have an emphasis on grace. And why is this so important in this particular age and I think the reason that this is so important is because we are living in a contemporary climate that is primarily therapeutic not religious that people today are no longer looking for personal salvation but for the feeling at least the momentary illusion of personal well-being health and psychic security I've been reading this book by Christopher Lash called Narcissism, um, uh, American Life in the Age of Diminishing Expectations from 1979. And he argues that the new narcissist, which he argues is just the American citizen, that we are, we, you know, we love to point the t finger at who we think are narcissists in our culture, but have we ever thought about it being like an American phenomenon? that we all have been so trained to believe that we are the most important thing in our realm of existence. And he argues this, and I think it's very true, and more true today than it was when he wrote it, that the new narcissist is haunted by guilt, not by guilt, but by anxiety. That we seek not to inflict our own certainties on others, but to find meaning in life. That this new culture is liberated from the superstitions of the past. That we're superficially relaxed and tolerant. That we find little use for dogma. We demand immediate gratification while living in a state of restless, perpetually unsatisfied desire. I think that that articulates the soul of American life today and the soul of urban existence and why this vision is so important because we need to be conduits by which Jesus through his gospel frees people from this sort of false thinking. So if we were to begin with this statement, I wanna begin with this, the first word which is door of hope is urban. In Jeremiah 29, verses four through seven, it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, I love this through the prophet Jeremiah, says this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that you too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there do not decrease. Also, and this is the verse that's often used uh, when those who argue for 
the need for urban ministry. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And this becomes a passage that sort of it be, seems to be a promotion for social justice and, and, and various other causes. But I just want you to know that the thing that we need to take into context and why I added the, the opening verses, not just the seek the peace of the city, but God in his sovereignty brought Israel into a pagan captivity, a land that was filled with idolatry, with false worship, with carnality, and yet he says, I'm the one that put you there, and now I'm telling you, I want you to actually be invested there, essentially be a reflection of me, bring the reality of what it means to be children of the actual living God to this place where you're at. He's not saying seek the peace of the city so that you can be happy. He's saying, listen, there is an inevitable cause and effect. When you live in accordance to my will, it, it, has, it has an impact. If you bring peace where you're at, it's gonna create peace in your life. And I think when you apply this from the gospel context that we at Door of Hope are an urban church plan movement, people often ask, why would you be in a city like Portland? And let me just tell you, over this last year is the first time ever where I have been unbelievably underwhelmed and disenchanted by Portland. Because everything that I love about Portland has been taken away from me and all that is left is just that ugly underbelly uh, that makes Portland also one of the most annoying places I've ever lived. So he, I don't get to eat at Pock Pock now, but I, I, but I still get to deal with, with the pretentiousness and, the, and, the, and this, this overriding like helplessness by which we see all of these social problems, whether it's Homeless, homeless issues or drug issues or questions around gender and sexuality. Portland is like this, like it is the hotbed of where the nation will be in like five to, five to six years, maybe longer. And, and I have talked to so many people who said like, I am over it, I'm moving to Idaho. <laughs> and I've never had that desire. In fact, I can promise you that it'll not be better. Um, <laughs> but I also am deeply leery. Like the thing that is frustrating for me is also the thing, it's frustrating for me because I love it so much. But, but in those moments where I'm like, I want out, Lord. I don't want to, I do not want to pastor a church in this climate or in this city where everything is analyzed and your people are constantly trying to pin what side you're on. And it's like, and they're listening for rhetoric and, and I'm just like, I'm over it. And then I'm reminded of this verse. I brought you there. I called you to this thing. Who am I to tell God, you know what? I don't really like that, Lord. This isn't what I like. I need, I need psychic peace. I need, I need personal satisfaction and happiness. And I was having a little bit of a pity party the other day about how difficult it is to be a pastor in Portland. I'm like, I'm just gonna build out. And Darcy has reminded me, she's like, you think you'd be more happy doing that? Don't you remember what you were like before you became a pastor? Like every time you've sought your own personal contentment, you've been miserable. But the moment you have surrendered yourself and you're focused more on the good of those around you, that is when you're a blessing to your family and to the church. And I was like, all right, why am I complaining about the very thing that I love doing? 
and it's like, it's like a martyr. I, I just entered it. You know you're tired when you turn into a little martyr baby where nobody works as hard as me. And the Lord's like, yeah, you don't work that hard. Yeah, not that hard. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that this is the thing. This is where God has called us. And so for us, it's like God didn't call me to start a church in, in Wilsonville because he, he doesn't love people there as much as he does. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> he called us to Portland, to this crazy city, this city that prides itself on keep Portland weird. And, you know, it's naked bike rides and it's progressive ideologies. And this is where God has called us. And so the question is, is will we bring that lens, the being compelled by love, and say, this is where we're committed. And I love, this is a huge vision for why did we pick the city pillar? The city pillar, why were we such hard, so hardcore about it? Because we believe the best way to bring reconciliation to an unreconciled place is to have a reconciled people actually living there. That's why. And so we will continue to be an urban-focused ministry. It's part of our vision. Now, urban is ever-shifting. We have to be adaptive. What Portland is, it continues to change and even expand. And, and what once, you know, was suburbs is now part of the urban core. And it's just like it's, it, there's a reality that we have to adapt. But the fact is, is that this, is, this needs to continue to be a focal point for us because what gives Portland the reputation of being one of the most unchurched cities in the United States is not the suburbs. It's the urban core that gives Portland that reputation and this is our mission field and this is where God has called us to live our lives, to have children, to be engaged, to work and to bring peace to the city and for us, Jesus is our peace who has torn down the middle wall of separation. So peace is not achieved by any political affiliation. Peace is achieved by living out the gospel in the place where God has placed you and he has the right to your life, not you. Are you willing to accept that? So the second reality is that Door of Hope is evangelistic. When people hear that, they immediately assume that if you're evangelistic, that means you don't care about sanctification or spiritual growth. But I wanna just be really clear that I do not believe that it is possible to grow into spiritual maturity and not be about the mission of Jesus, which is seeking and saving the lost through us. And nothing produces spiritual maturity like being utilized by Jesus to bring the gospel to others. Nothing will make you want to read your Bible. The reason I read my Bible in its entirety the first year I got saved and actually became, became obsessively, or I went through even stages where I would try to read the Bible every few months, it, was because, it wasn't because I had this deep desire to read First and Second Chronicles over and over again, because I didn't, because it's not fun. Uh, it was because I wanted to have the tools necessary to continue to see more people come to faith because it was so unbelievably exciting. Like the best feeling I have ever had seeing someone go from death to life. Just seeing the first person, my friend, Dylan, come to faith 
before I even knew how to articulate the gospel in its fullness, was so life-changing that it was like everything that compelled spiritual growth, my prayer life, my reading, my commitment to the church, my generosity, all of it flowed out of a desire to be an unconvoluted conduit of God's grace. It was like every change I made, things that I stopped doing, things that I started doing, all of it was driven by what can I do to be, to be more a part of this thing. The love of Christ alone compels us. And the evangelistic piece is, that, is, is driven by this. Look at, look at what Paul says to Timothy. This is what the church is to be about. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't, it didn't say Christ Jesus came into the world to make great countries. It says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Paul, at the end of his life, probably at the peak of his spiritual maturity as a saint, says my sainthood actually is hinged upon a right understanding of how much the gospel has saved me from myself. Uh, he says, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. That the church, Jesus said, and this is what you shall do. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the world. Jacques Ellul said it best. He's like, the only thing the central thing that the church is to be about is to be, a, to be a true sign that we are to be salt and light and sheep amongst wolves. And those signs are continually to point people to Christ, that we can be tread upon, that we can be killed, that we could experience persecution. He said, all these things in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. And I'm telling you, there are going to be lines drawn in the sand. It is going to be harder and harder to be a follower of Jesus in our country. I promise you that. And it's going to require more and more. Jesus is going to say, listen, there isn't going to be space for the lukewarm. People are either going to give themselves fully to Jesus or they're going to walk away from their faith. That it even says in the last days that the love of many will grow cold because the cost is too much because too many people have not counted the cost. What will it cost you to follow Jesus? Everything, everything, friendships, relationships, possibly family, jobs maybe. How long do you think it'll take for all of us who maybe were relieved at new restrictions on, on free press this week. I don't know if you should be that excited about that because what it means for us is it's only a matter of time before we're told you can't actually preach Romans without it be considering, considered hate speech. You realize that that's coming, right? That's the natural progression of a progressive culture. It already is the case in several European countries. And so it is for us, we have to understand that our, our responsibility, it doesn't change. The mission hasn't changed. We are called to be conduits of the gospel because people are perishing. And we know that alone changes the human experience. Third, we are a church planting movement. I know that some of you would say, well, that's not really what we've been up to this point. I mean, we've only planted one and it happened two weeks before COVID began. 
uh, and that was Dorf Hope Northeast. But the original vision for Dorf Hope was, hey, Portland is not a city where you can have, you know, a megachurch. And I had worked at megachurches, and I'm like, no, the best way to reach the city is to have a bunch take over these old, beautiful buildings that seat, you know, between two and 500 people, restore them, bring beauty to them, bring value to them, and then have people that live in that neighborhood being a part of that a part of that church and inviting that community to come and hear the gospel preached. That was the vision. It was really simple. The question was, how would we do it? And, you know, originally we thought we'd have one northeast, southeast, northwest, southwest, four, four quadrants of the city. And that then the dilemma became, well, that how will each church be pastored? And so we played with lots of ideas. I would no longer be a pastor at any single church, but I would rotate through the four and preach at them once a month. Or, you know, there was a lot of different ideas. We still don't totally know how we're going to tackle this moving forward, but we do believe Northeast kind of put in motion. We, we know that we want the churches to have their own elder bodies. We know that, th- that we want them to have uh, a great level of autonomy. We don't want Cameron to feel like he's being controlled by what he has to teach what I teach or we we want those we think each church should be its own congregation have its own but we want to be connected by common values a common commitment to the gospel a common aesthetic all of those things that we kind of laid out over a year ago when we kind of broke down the church structure moving forward we're playing with lots of different ideas maybe I go and help plant uh, whatever new church there is with the, whoever the lead pastor is going to be and I'm, I'm there for two years and then I go do it again at another one. Maybe not. We don't know. But we do know that if we want to see new growth and radical evangelism happening, the best way to see people engaged in church is t- new church plants creates way more opportunities for people to serve it also is, they've, it's proven that the, the time when a church will see the most fruit in evangelism was, is in the first four years of its existence. And that's exactly how it was for Door of Hope. The first several years, I mean, there were a couple years where we were baptizing in the upwards of two to 300 people a summer. And I mean, that just shows how explosive the growth was in the early days with young people. We need to keep planting churches or we will be a church that eventually just ages out because millennials are no longer 18 to 25 year olds. Now they're 25 to 35 year olds. And so we need to continually be pursuing and pressing in and going after next generations and, and going for movement. And that is why we need to be a church planning movement. And that is why we need to be a people that are committed to continuing to pursue buildings that we can get our hands on, restore. There are so many empty churches in Portland. We're praying. We, right now, we would love to see one on the west side, and we would love to see something further east, uh, which we would love to be looking for something in out. For me, it, you, when Dorfo began, I thought 82nd was no man's land. Like, if you live past 82nd, you should not be coming here. That's way too, too far away. Now it's like, if you can afford to live on this side of 82nd, you're in the, you know, point Oh, one percent. I mean, it's just the city's gotten so expensive, and where 
millennials could afford to live buying their first homes and having kids. So, I mean, we have so many people, most of our staff lives on the other side of 82nd. Um, so we would love to see something. We'd love to see something on the west side. And we're, we are pursuing those conversations. And, and it, it f- fulfills this vision of wanting to be a church planning movement. And this is the time to be planning. This is the time to be praying that God would raise up new leaders. Time for us to be thinking about how do we increase diversity in our staffing and, and in our leadership so that we can effectively reach the various neighborhoods um, throughout the city. Finally, uh, we want to be a people who put an emphasis on grace. Now I was talking with, uh, with one of the elders and he said, it, it should say grace and truth. And, and I just wanna say that it's true. It says in John that Jesus was full of grace and truth. But just look here at Ephesians chapter two, verses four through 10. It says, but because of this great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So notice, we did nothing. We were dead. You can't do anything when you're dead. And it says, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. It doesn't say of his grace and truth. It says of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which have been prepared in advance for us to do. The key word, the preposition in, is of utmost importance, that we are a people who are in Christ Jesus, but we are only in him because he has loved us before we even had a thought about him. And the reason that I didn't say our emphasis is on grace and truth is because our emphasis is on grace because Jesus is the truth. And everything that we can know about Jesus requires first him to reveal that to us, which is all grace, means that everything comes from him. It's a one way from him. You're not adding to it. You're not discovering it. Jesus is revealing it as he is lifted up. The reason it's about grace, the emphasis is on grace, is because grace puts us in the proper position of humility as we become carriers of a message to a world that says I am telling you that Jesus saved me when I never even had a thought about him that I know how sinful I am but I have experienced the love of God who saved me the chief of sinners Grace gives us that posture of the AA meeting that recognizes that what makes the gospel compelling is it's a place where people can come and not be judged but discover the freedom from the weight and the bondage of bad decisions and sin. We are sinners telling people, we're beggars telling people where to find bread. This is the beauty of the gospel. And the reason that the emphasis is on grace is because too often the church becomes therapeutic and it becomes about do this if you wanna be successful at work and do this if you wanna be a successful parent or successful in your marriage and do these four things and you'll be happy and all of it plays into that cultural phenomenon of the individual as the center of the universe and we're not about any of that. 
what we're going to say is that actually people by nature, like we're not surprised by the siege of the Capitol building because people suck. I know that because I do. And because of that, I can say, hey, listen, it's okay. Jesus loves you. That's the beauty. You're, he, he, he knows you're a big failure. He knows you're a screw up. He knows you're selfish. He knows all of those things and yet he chooses in his sovereignty to continue to press in and pursue you in spite of yourself because not because of you. There's actually really very little lovable about you. It's that he is in himself love. And we can say that because that love has been poured out in our broken hearts, that we are saints because we are sinners who have been forgiven. And we have entrusted our lives to Jesus. We are in him and it is him who works through us as we surrender our lives to him. And that is why for us, there is no understanding the truth unless grace, Emmanuel, Jesus, who is the truth, opens our blind eyes. What we, need to, what we need more than anything is not smarter brains, but a greater yieldedness to the one who spoke and the universe left into existence for he, the Holy Spirit, actually comes to dwell within us for we are the body of Christ. And it is the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness, for it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. What I want people to experience when they come to a door of hope, whether it's here or northeast or wherever it is that we might plant a church, is that they are going to experience a people that reflect what it means to be loved in spite of ourselves and the humbling reality of that and the joy that it is to grow into the likeness of Jesus as his ambassadors because we are participants in his great saving purposes for this world. This is the gospel. This is what we believe God has called us to. And this is what we are asking you to participate in as a community. Don't give up on the church. Be a part of this great saving message. For Jesus, if he can't do it through you, he's just gonna do it through someone else. May we be a church that stays faithful to that witness and may we reflect Jesus as we live out this gospel together. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for the ways that you love us. Thank you for we are reminded that in heaven there are only forgiven sinners. No good guys, no upright no successful people. We're not gonna be there by our own integrity. There are only failures. Only us who have accepted our deaths and our sins and have been raised up by you, our King, who died that we might live. Thank you that you are love and you will not let us go. If anybody can sort it out, Jesus, it's you. We trust you. We trust you now. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.